This is Mitch. And Zach. Cutting in for a quick ask. If you're enjoying listening to our podcast, we want to thank you, first of all, for supporting this stupid idea a couple of friends had. But if you'd like to thank us for something that provided you with a little bit of entertainment, then please give us a like and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And if you really like it, we would really appreciate a review and rating from you on your podcast platform of choice. Maybe you have some feedback, constructive criticism, maybe suggestions for movies for us to watch, or just want to drop us a line. You can slide in our DMs at dishingthroughdecades at gmail.com. But if you could do one thing and one thing only, we humbly ask that you share the dish with your friends. It's 2021, and there's no caring like sharing. It goes a super long way towards getting this podcast off the ground, and it would make a couple of dudes who don't know too much about movies or about food feel pretty dang great. That's right, Mitch. Help us spread the good word of our pod. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time for another episode of The Dish with Zach and Mitch. Welcome to The Dish, a 90s action podcast by a couple of guys who don't really know movies, don't really know podcasts that well, but we just love to hang out, shoot the shit, and watch movies and stuff. I'm Zach. And I'm Mitch. And together we are the two-part team that are slicing and dicing our way through movies. We're almost all the way through the Tom Clancy 90s franchise Today we, we watched Clear and Present Danger. We sure did, Zach. How is it hanging with you, Mitchell? It has been two weeks since our last podcast, <laughs> which is actually relatively soon for us. So our production schedule has us sweating it. Not really, but... We're going to have to up the ante if we're going to push out two episodes a month, my friend. <laughs> Once we start getting a ravenous following... Yeah, I agree. They're going to be demanding more than this. How's it hanging for you, Mitch? There's something I was going to talk to you about, but I forget what it was. I had so much planned for this Marin Open, and here I am with a brain of blank slate. Well, I've got a hammer and a chisel. Yeah, you're going to come over here and give me a what say? What say we uh, Flintstone style fill in this Marin Open? All right. Uh, to continue your analogy... My bare feet are on the ground, ready to kick us off in the Flintstones mobile. What topic do you propose? You, this, you, this, this might be a bit of a personal, uh, a personal dive for our viewers, but this is going to be my last pod before I die. No, uh, that's that's. Let's hope not. <laughs> that's uh, that's too dark. But this will be my last pod before I have surgery i actually have i have brain surgery on tuesday you sure do zach yeah it, it's not primary brain and that it's like not my brain itself but it's, it's your pituitary it so, gland right yeah it sounds so like I, I always try and like temper how horrific and serious it sounds i mean it is serious it but. is serious but at the same time it's not like a you have 5% chance to live sort of situation. Yeah, I should be fine. I, I should be fine, but it's still scary and everything. And so I just bought a house. So I've been running around trying to like 
fix a bunch of stuff up and do it all before I have surgery because it's going to be like a you know two weeks recovery. So it's been a stressful little two while. Two weeks like in bed, right? And two then... weeks in bed and then like six weeks of taking it easy lest I blow air up into my brain and become an airhead. So That sounds unpleasant. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. So I just installed a door today and uh, first time installing a door. So I worked outside in like 95 degree weather for got us nice Americans. Got plum and level. Yep. Yep. Nice plum level. Uh, I got to flex my new drill. So that was fun. Yeah, man. But man, what a getting a door level and then uh, getting it cocked up, making sure you got the right size door. I know I'm sounding like a super noob DIYer, but man, a headache to the max. There are several dads who are giving you the nod of acknowledgement, similar to that you get from that stash. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I, I've still gotten a couple nods from this stash. Nice. Which has to be shaved pre-surgery since they're going to be digging real deep for boogers. They don't want to uh, shove some of that beautiful, those beautiful face pubes up, up your septum. Yeah, no kidding. I guess like... It's interesting. One of the things that they mentioned that most people don't think about, but is actually a concern, but doesn't happen that often, is infections. You can get, I guess, to be simple, a brain infection. Ooh. And you would imagine that if you're like sticking a utensil up through your nose and collecting all your, you know, snot and stuff and using that to cut into your skull, you get a pretty serious infection, but they don't really, I guess it's not like doesn't happen that often. Huh. But that's why I got to shave my beard to minimize, you know, uh, the booger brain connection. They probably do a pretty solid roto rooting before they <laughs> pierce the veil with the. Oh, yeah. To get up in there. Just stick a neti pot way deep up in there. Yeah, it's a commercial neti pot. Man, I am, um, you know, rooting for you. I. I know you've you have been incredibly resilient emotionally about it, and I commend you for that. And thanks for continuing to do podcasts with me on the eve of of such a life event. I totally get um, the downplaying of it because I had testicular cancer back in 2010, and any time someone would talk to me about it, I'd be like, yeah, I had cancer. You know, it was just testicular cancer. You know, not that big a deal, high survival rate, and all that. But plenty of people have said like. It's still cancer. You know, plenty of people die from it. I think the difference is if you catch it early. You know, I think it's similar for you with your with your dealie. I guess if it le- went left unchecked for too long, it could be more problematic. Yeah, my, my dealie is a benign tumor. I think what you should definitely do is ask them to put it in a jar for you. Because the one thing that I fucked up at when I had my surgery was I didn't get them to put my testicle in a jar so I could take it home with me. I wish I'd done it, and I didn't do it, and now it's in a landfill somewhere. But it'd be pretty cool to have my you know, my left family jewel sitting on a shelf somewhere. So that way when you are trying to you know, make a deal with somebody and say, man, I would give my left nut for that truck, you can actually do it. You know what? I'll throw my left nut in for this one. <laughs> No joke. It's right here. It's in my pocket. <laughs> well, it's great. I already got some truck nuts up on here. We can make it three. Yeah. I don't know if you get the same market value with a pituitary tumor as a testicle. I have to check that out. Well, Mitch, um, you know, nothing, very few things bring me as much joy this, as this pod, so I'm happy to do it. Let's say we go ahead and uh, dive into clear and present danger. 
Clear and Present Danger, the final installment of 90s Tom Clancy movies starring Harrison Ford. Yep, he is back in the saddle as Jack Ryan. Still a good Jack Ryan, but inferior to uh, Alec Baldwin, of course. Is it accurate to say back in the saddle? Because technically, the fro came before Patriot Games. It is absolutely not okay to say back in the saddle. <laughs> we just watched it in backwards order. We watched we Patriot did. Games, The Hunt for October, and then Clear and Present Danger. So to me, it feels that way. But be not ye, not. be not ye confused, viewers. That's just how we did it. They're not going to be confused because this is going to be edited out. It sure is. That's how this works, Mitchell. (laughs) We make mistakes and we edit them out so no one ever sees them. Or we leave them in because they're funny. Yeah, that's true. Man, Um, is is it just me or is there like a kind of blanket that sits on top of the atmosphere in the first, like, let's just say the first two beers of pod (laughs) where I just feel a little heavy, you know, like... The pressure's on to record and do a good job, and you better be funny. But at the same time, it doesn't freaking matter. It does not. And you know what? I think sometimes you just need to rip the band-aid off, and that's what I'm going to do right now. How are you going to rip off this band-aid for me, Zach? Well, Mitch, this movie opens (laughs) like a Trumper's wet dream. It opens like a right-wing conservative wants a movie to start and wants to justify the war on drugs, the war on immigration. This is just like conservative ammunition, I thought. Truly it opens, is. I think, if I remember right, just straight up to a, a, a flag. Fade in, fade in to a flag. And then you zoom out and you see it's a ship speeding down some waterway. And it also kind of feels like one of those Navy commercials. Like, want to join the Navy? Join the Coast Guard. Yeah. Um, So it's a Coast Guard ship chasing some boat. At one point, they cut to the boat that the the Coast Guard is chasing. And guess who it is? It's a bunch of brown people. It's it's specifically (laughs) two Hispanic men on a yacht. And they're like, oh, shit, they're on us. We need to put out the flag. And they grab a flag. Yeah, they, they hang this flag over the back of the ship. As if it's just supposed to deter the Coast Guard. <laughs> and that's not going to do it for Lady Captain of this Coast Guard boat. So they, they get a dinghy out and they board this yacht. They say, these people are too brown. Question for Apu de Beaumarchais. Isn't it true that you're really an Indian? By the many arms of Vishnu, I swear it is a lie. They're too brown. They're We're too, too conservative. They're too brown for us not to board. They've taken too many of our jobs. We're here to get those jobs back. <laughs> is this offensive? It's not offensive because we're not the ones who are actually... It's satirical. Is it's it satirical. Is. It's in jest. Therefore, not offensive. Maybe it's good to lay out that we don't actually espouse these views. I'm just repeating what it seems like a conservative Coast Guard captain would be we thinking. Are, we are a product of our Republican dads. That is very true. <laughs> we we kind of have a sixth sense of how Republican boomers might think. Do you think that the primary readership for Tom Clancy novels are Republican dads or just dads in general? Oh, man, that's a good question. I'd say dads, yes. Republican dads, I don't know. Oh, man, probably, yeah, actually. 
they have like their shirt tucked into their khakis or or blue jeans with their brown leather belts, a leather pocket knife holder on their belt, and maybe a, probably a plaid button down. Probably a plaid button down. Yep. Um, their their jeans sit just above their navel, most likely. <laughs> in ninety like whatever in in nineteen ninety shit when did this book come out nineteen eighty nine when Clear and Present Danger came out. Those dads were definitely rocking some high jeans. Oh yeah, high, high waters. Yeah, yeah, they were dadding out really hard. So yeah, they sing out. They sing out a dinghy. They send out a dinghy. The Coast Guard boards this boat, and somebody radios back over to the captain on the Coast Guard ship and says, "You better get over here. It's pretty bad." Captain. Captain. Go ahead, senior chief. It's a bad one. I think you better send over the video camera. We cut to Langley, and it's wintertime, and our hero, Jack Ryan, Harrison Ford, is meeting James Earl Jones yep. uh, about some business going on in the Caribbean, the South Caribbean. Uh, J.E.J. says to be discreet. And Jack Ryan's like, what? About what? He has no clue what's going on. Yeah. Mysterious. Ooh. <laughs> I love a mystery. So he heads to the White House in his Taurus station wagon, the same Taurus station wagon from Patriot Games. He's still driving that whip. Yeah. Man. It's like, you have a optometrist wife. Can't she cut you a few bones? Man. To upgrade your car? Apparently... Man. Apparently FBI, being like a higher up in the FBI, does not pay well. Or maybe he, this is his discreet mobile. Yeah, true. I don't know. Very odd. But it's it's reminiscent of that scene from the Red October where Jack Ryan gives a surprise briefing to Top Brass about Ramius and the Red October unprepared. Yeah. Ryan is sprung this last minute Oval Office, oh shit club meeting about whatever is on this boat yeah okay i guess i'll just go present this notebook that i haven't read yet to the president and his chiefs of staff real quick right (laughs) shit and he does just that and they have a video feed from the coast guard ship and it looks like there have been a few murders done in the staterooms or in the bedrooms of this ship they conjecture that the family aboard was murdered in their sleep the wife, son, and daughter of a Hardin, and they believe it's drug-related. And the takeaway here is that this Hardin is a good friend of the Commander-in-Chief. Why? Nothing exotic, sir, straight piracy and murder. It's not the first time. It's the first time it was a friend of mine. The president himself. And, they, yeah, they find out that the criminals do, in fact, have drug trafficking charges, and they're from Colombia. After the meeting, uh, the chiefs of staff leave, and the president and one of his, uh, maybe his chief of staff or a close advisor. I think it's his nas- I think it's the national security advisor. Okay, we'll go with that. Um, I just called him the half hairline advisor because his hairline was like directly halfway on top of his skull. They discuss options for how to deal with the drug cartels. It's kind of some political posturing discussion, like how do we, you know, make this look good to the American public? Yeah, and we get the um, 
this feels like a very 90s thing to me, but the movie title drop by the president, these drug cartels present a clear and present danger to the United States of America. It's a very serious film, and it's made clear and present right here how important this president's political agenda is to him. Like, he's, he feels ashamed about the, lack of, about the lack of success with the drug war, and he is talking to his national security advisor, and he's like, you know, I'd really like to do something about this, but I can't. Are you suggesting a course of action, sir? course of action I'd suggest is a course of action I can't suggest. I can't order you to do something less than moral about this, but this is a national security risk. Did you notice that the president had grandma candies on his desk? There are a wide variety of grandma candies. It was in like the colored glass jar, like the amber colored glass jar oh yeah and it was like the cheap butterscotch and peppermint those are the grandma candies. yeah dude it was like <laughs> the grandma candies on the desk that prop has got to be used in so oh, many man. movies i imagine but you'd imagine you'd think they could get like some premium candy and a premium holder for the commander-in-chief's desk yeah man get some like charleston chews up in there yeah something better than that jawbreakers jolly ranchers Something other than the butterscotch. But then again, those butterscotches are really good. Well, I guess he's not Willy Wonka. Yeah, very true. Well, we cut to the drug cartel's mansion immediately after this. And there's a very suave Hispanic man getting out of a nice car. And he confronts this drug lord uh, who's in like a batting cage. He's just all about some batting. You stop long enough for me to tell you something important. So he confronts this this uh, batty drug lord. This suave guy who got out of the car is talking about how the drug lord is running his business with his balls instead of his head. And if you keep doing this, I'm going to quit and you're going to get killed. Listen, you pay me to counsel you and I'm counseling you. And he mentioned that hit that you had done on that yacht. Well, guess what? Those people were good friends of the President of the United States. You done fucked up. You know what I'm saying? You done fucked up now. You know that, don't you? <laughs> and the drug lord just, like, doesn't care. He's like, yeah, okay. That's I cool. think he cared a little bit. He, like, he's, he's, he, he, he actually... seems to not try to not care. He actually stopped batting for a second. But you can tell he's like, ugh, another thing I have to deal with. He cares a little, I think. I think he realizes it's he, he seems to view it as an inconvenience rather than oh i fucked up yeah this is a guy who has a lot at his disposal and he's very used to being in power and in control it's it's clear and present from the beginning <laughs> also dangerous and dangerous indeed yeah we go back to the ryan household and they now have two kids they do it's the same wife which i think they're calling kathy now yeah and then Sally, the little girl. Yep. And now young John. I didn't catch his name, actually, but I just, it was a little boy that they kind of really teased us at the end of Patriot Games. They really left us on a cliffhanger about the gender of the baby. They sure did, Zach. You know what was great about this scene, though? He's playing with the Red October in the kitchen sink. Bye, pal. Dang, whoa. 
Hello. It's not supposed to float. It's a submarine. It's a boat that goes underwater. He's got a submarine toy. That he is. I I loved that. That yeah. was such a fun little. I don't know if it's technically an Easter egg, but that was such a fun little nod. It's gotta be. It's gotta be right. I mean, it's it's definitely like fan service. Yeah, Jack Ryan's like ah memories. It would have been fun here to get some sort of like nerd analytical lingo about like how the sub works. Oh like, yeah. To Johnny or by... Johnny is just playing with little action figures, Vasily and Ramius. Oh yeah. Oh no, Vasily, you've been shot. <laughs> Vasily just has like uh, he's holding a rabbit. It's Vasily holding a rabbit with his arm around a plump woman. <laughs> oh yeah. There's a pickup truck as well. Get your Vasily figure now by Hasbro. <laughs> if you subscribe to our Patreon, <laughs> not really. But amidst all this, just absolutely lovable family scenery. Uh, Jack Ryan gets some, just based on his face, disturbing phone call. We, we don't see what it's about, but it turns out that Admiral Greer has, it was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Yeah. It, you, they kind of allude to Greer being sick in the Oval Office scene. He's coughing in the background and they're like, are you all right? And he's like, oh, I'm just sick. But turns out he's really sick. At, at that point, Greer is like, I want you to be deputy director of intelligence at the CIA. I need you there. Where? In my office, doing my job. No way. I, 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 I hate not knowing what's going on, Jack. You know that. I wouldn't know the first thing about doing your job, sir. You've been around. Basically, take my job until I get out of this. Yeah, Greer's in the hospital, but he looks, he seems more or less healthy. But this is the first part of a rapid deterioration and downfall of James Earl Jones' character throughout this whole movie. And that it was really gut-wrenching to see. Yeah, it really was. Because this, this is a character you like. I mean, you, you can't not like James Earl Jones in a role like this. And it sucks seeing his decline. But Ryan gets the promotion. And he's kind of getting uh, sworn in at Langley. And he's working with this other guy who is revealed to be the director of operations for the CIA, kind of like the two heads of the CIA, I guess. I'm a snag. And he looks like a vampire, like a 90s vampire. Did you see his hairline? It's like... He had a widow's peak. Really aggressive sure. widow's peak. And he has like the just downturned face. He's just so unhappy all the time. I thought it looked like David from The Office. I don't... I haven't seen much of The Office. We'll, we'll edit that out we'll because that out. we can't let our viewers know that we have we will lose an uncultured individual on this yeah, podcast. We'll lose a broad amount of our listenership. Well, this this gentleman with angry resting face, who's the director of operations, his name is Ritter. His last yeah. name is Ritter. Count Ritter. The two people that are now... <laughs> <laughs> the two people that are now basically running the CIA, on one hand, or on one side, you have... Uh, the director of intelligence, Jack Ryan. And on the other side, literally literally the other side of the office, their doors are facing each other. You could you shoot have, each other with a BB gun if both of the doors were open. A nerve gun. Yeah. You have uh, the director of operations, Ritter. Could you imagine having like a team building exercise in the CIA, all the intelligence operatives versus all of the like operations 
uh, like field agents. Like they split the office in half and have a fucking nerf war. It'd be a nerf bloodbath. It would be. Who do you think would win? The field agents for sure. Yeah, probably the field agents over the nerds. I don't know. The nerds are they're smart and quirky. They might find some creative solutions, like some nerf grenades. Nerf grenades, my god! Like instead of nails, like an improvised <laughs> explosive filled with nails, it's filled with nerf bullets. Filled with like just foam pieces. <laughs> <laughs> Frag out. So it turns out that Ritter, the new guy working across from Ryan, is. A real douche. Working under the table and is, yeah, real douche. There's one of the scenes we get after this is Ritter is talking to the half hairline advisor, the NSA advisor. They're discussing what the president wants to do, keeping this war on drugs unofficial. Unofficial, but effective. Thank Man, you. What, what do you got there? Uh, this is a uh, gallon of PCP. Wow, a a gallon. Yes. Yeah, that that's that's illegal, right? Yeah, it's a felony. It's a felony. Yes. Wow. Right. And so Ritter says I, he wants to leave Jack Ryan out of it. He's, you can tell he hates Ryan. He's calling him a Boy Scout. That guy's got a moral compass. Yeah, he's just tossing all sorts of like derogatory terms at Ryan, but he's kind of flaming himself in the process. He's like, no, no, no. He's he's like too good. He's he's morally good. We don't want someone like that in this operation. It's, you know what that guy is? Actually, I'll tell you what that guy's not. He's not a piece of shit, so I don't want anything to do with him. <laughs> he's loyalty, cleanliness, not time. It's a true representation of Washington. Truly. This is kind of a political, I guess a political statement by Tom Clancy. You know, like, hey, it's not uncommon to see corruption in the White House, and this is it. Or at least in fiction. <laughs> Yeah, not even just corruption, but like all kinds of crazy backdoor and backroom alliances. Yeah, like house rules. Right. You could just get fucked if you're not talking to the right person or playing the right game. And it feels like a bunch of bullshit. And it felt kind of that way at times watching this movie. If you're just trying to play, if you're trying to be on the up and up and just do things by the book and do right by the American people, you're going to get left behind. Like Jack Ryan. Right. Want to know about politics in Washington? Four words. Watch your back, Jack. I just imagine a bunch of dudes like with trash cans as armor, like they're they're standing in a trash can, but they're run like around their chest because they're pieces of trash, and they're running around with a trash can laid over their ass because they're all trying to cover their asses. That sounds like a good like a fun field day event. Yeah, that's that's actually what the FBI does on their team building days. <laughs> the last day of FBI school, they they have that event. Yeah, except they use real guns, trank darts. <laughs> But the NSA or the National Security Advisor is dishing to Count Ritter about what the president wants, how he wants this drug war taken care of off the books. Ritter's like, all right, but I need a copy of that in writing because I'm not going down with the ship whenever this all comes to light. So Count Ritter gets his seal of approval from Hairline Advisor. (laughs) (laughs) To break the rules, I guess. And basically run this war on drugs. This Operation Reciprocity is what it's called in in, uh, in the movie. It's what they, the stupid name they give it. Yeah, it's dumb. Let's call it Operation Shoot Myself in the Foot. 
Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. <laughs> if you could see my shame. I I appreciate it. I was actually trying to think of some, you know, some CIA Keanu to to clap back with. See, uh, I wish uh, this movie really needs CIA Keanu. Yeah. He's a nerd in the intelligence department. If he was the hacker, that would have been good. If only the CIA was working with the FBI. If only. Then we might be able to get CIA Keanu. That's canon. This this was filmed like a year after Point Break, I think. So technically, <clears throat> Agent Utah could show up in D.C. for one reason or another. Oh, Lord. So anyways. I got a break in this new case. <laughs> found these guys they're radical they they're importing massive amounts of drugs through the border i think they're like colombian they just they live to get radical like real like searchers you know cut to panama (laughs) and count ritter is talking to really tan willem dafoe reciprocity that's a clever name for it Revenge is a very, very, very dangerous motivation. Yeah, with his newly minted hall pass, he's gone down to south of the border. He sure has, Zach. We have a very conspicuous manila envelope with reciprocity printed on it. And it looks like Count Ritter is going to pay Willem Dafoe under the table to carry out this operation. And no expense will be spared. Yeah. It was, I've never seen Defoe looking like this, I feel like. I, I He looked like, almost chill. He did. He, the, maybe I haven't seen enough Prime Defoe. I feel like Prime Defoe is eccentric Defoe. Like Willem Defoe in Boondock Saints. Oh, yeah. For example, like he's like a cross-dressing detective, you know. <laughs> I did this for the job. <laughs> when really... I do this in my spare time. <laughs> you got any theories to go with that time? You know, but this this Defoe, his his name is Clark, and I guess he's some very special contact who is good at getting jobs done. I don't know. Have you have you seen Platoon? Man, I haven't seen Platoon. Prime Defoe is in Platoon, and it's kind of similar to this. He's, I mean, like. His role, in a way, because he's paramilitary here, but in Platoon, he's he kills it. Count Ritter gets Clark. Do you want to call him Clark, or do you want to go with something else? Clark's a good, recognizable name, or we could do... Um, I think Willem Defoe carries enough weight, we could just call him Willem, or Defoe. Down to business Defoe. Or WD. WD. DTB. DTB Defoe. DTB Defoe. I like DTB Defoe. I could roll with that. After the scene with DTB Defoe, we cut to the DC airport, and we have a very tense scene with this suave Hispanic guy uh, from before meeting who the guy. Who, I didn't know that that was just him. It is the same guy. At first, it I took mean, I me. I know now. Yeah, but watching it, he he was in some pretty good makeup. Yeah, he was. It, I thought it was a new character. They did a good job, or I guess his his character did a good job of disguising himself as a tractor salesman or whatever. Shout out makeup department, Mitch. Yeah, but it does make it difficult for the viewer to follow. 
Because I thought, I was like, who's this new guy coming in? At what point, or did you at any point think, there are too many characters in this movie? I thought that several times. This is another one of those times when a Tom Clancy adaptation of a film is too much like the book. We can talk about that more later, though. Well, I guess we could talk about it now, too. Yeah. If you want to just insert some dish here. I think, yeah, I mean, I think, like, I don't know. It, it, it's, it has stricken me. Yeah, there were several times where it felt like, particularly where we are now in the you know first half of the movie, there were so many back-and-forth scene changes yeah. with new characters and seemingly nebulous plot development. It wasn't clear yeah. what was going on. You're just sitting there thinking... Gosh, I sure hope this barrage of 30-second scenes introducing new characters coalesces into something I can follow. Right. And very often it didn't, which left me more confused. And then the next scene, they throw a new character in. And this, this scene right here was one of those scenes where I saw this new guy. And I'm like, okay, it's a new guy checking into an airport. Only it wasn't a new guy. He just looks totally different from right. the other scene he was in. Right. So that was kind of fun in a way, I guess, that like they actually tricked the audience even though the same dude. I, I have the feeling that that was a, just a faux pas. I don't think that they... I think they wanted you to know it was the same guy. Huh. Maybe they added the tension in this scene to help with that, but it's a very tense scene of him coming into D.C. from presumably Columbia, and he's handing over his passport to the, the TSA agent, and she's asking him you know, what he does, why he's coming to the country, how long he's going to be there. What is the purpose of your visit? Business. What kind of business are you in? I sell tractors. Well, I build them, then I sell them. And he is noticeably nervous, although he plays it off really well. And after he gets through that, another 90s redhead meets him at the airport, very giddy to see him. And they head to a restaurant where none other than Kathy Ryan is eating lunch with some of her uh, doctor buddies talking about surgery. Kathy sees her and walks up to, to to greet her, but the dude, the suave Hispanic guy who, I don't know what to call him, he kind of reminded me of like if Antonio Barandaris had like a less attractive older brother. His name is Cortez in the film. Anyway, Cortez sees her coming and steps out. Maybe you should. Excuse me, your table is ready now. Give it to somebody else, I'll get the cab. Moira? Oh, hi. Yeah, to make things even more confusing, um, who we, I guess, are maybe supposed to know is Cortez, this guy that came through customs that's in makeup. He is disguising himself, at least partially, for this redhead that he's at the restaurant with. She knows Cortez as Roberto. She and her go to the restaurant. He leaves when he sees Kathy coming up. And it's just, I thought it was a really ineffective scene because it's just like, what? Like, why? What, what I mean, happened? All they were trying to do is establish that this dude is dating this woman solely to have a connection to the intelligence community in Washington. He's still with the FBI? Oh, yeah, in the director's office. I think that's what they're establishing here. Because later you find out that Moira, who's the, who's the redhead that he's dating, is the secretary of another, like intelligence director yeah but i'm saying i think like that should be set up earlier he's still with the fbi oh yeah in the director's office yeah rather they, than just why is he dating this girl and why did he show up to a restaurant just to bounce like 
20 seconds after walking in. I think he bounced because he saw Kathy Ryan. Right. He's trying to maintain a low profile. He's trying to just be this like mysterious man she's dating that no one can ever meet so that he can milk her for information via sex. It sets him up as a shady dude, but just leaving you with far more questions than answers in a movie that up to this point has just kind of flailed around, it felt like, without actually developing much of anything. It's very clunky execution. I, I couldn't agree more. Like it's, It is hard to follow. Yeah. What is funny in this scene, though, is that Moira's like, oh my God, did you see my friend Roberto? He's like a Latin Jack Ryan, I think is what she says. Doesn't he look like Jack? Oh, does he? I can't quite see. Only Latin. A Latin Jack Ryan? <laughs> oh, well, this I have to see. She sure does, Mitch. <laughs> like, I was thinking, like, what the fuck? In that moment, like, why? Why? Like, she's trying to, I guess, make Kathy jealous. Of being like, I have the Spanish version of your wife, yeah. your husband. I got your husband, but browner. Yeah, but more Banderas-y. Yeah, I got the Banderas version of Jack Ryan. <laughs> Antonio Ford. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> the, the Banderas version of Jack Ryan is yeah. our title. <laughs> Do you have these cockies with pleats? I love it. <laughs> so we get this somewhat unnecessary scene, but after that, we cut to Langley again. Harrison Ford as Ryan is looking into the hardened stuff still this, this like billionaire or whatever who got murdered. That is the whole reason for this movie. The guy who knows the president. What are you picturing here? A hit on a respectable American businessman and his family. You're assuming he's respectable. And he hasn't had much luck figuring out what's going on with that. So he starts looking into Harden himself and he thinks maybe this guy he starts is, to get masturbatory <laughs> starts looking into the harden harden himself oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> but, bum, 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 bum. <laughs> that might stay <laughs> so he thinks this guy might lack character let's look into him and they find I guess they got this from the yacht. They have a, quote, Harden Industries floppy disk. Harden floppy? Yeah. <laughs> They've got a Harden floppy that they shove into a computer. They just jam it in there, flaccid. I don't think you can insert a hardened, then floppy into the hole. Yeah. I think it needs to be just Harden, not floppy. It's a Harden disk. Yeah. It's right. not a floppy disk. Technically, this is a 3.5 millimeter, so it's not floppy anymore. This is when they were more rigid. It wasn't one of the big, like, six-inch ones. Uh, that dates me a little bit. But Well, what you really need is one of those eight-inch ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can do a lot with the three and a half inches of hard disk. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you know where to put it. You know, they say it's the quality of the RAM, not the size of the floppy. Oh, Jack Ryan gives this three and a half inch hard disk to his acne ridden uh computer geek he puts the hard so yeah the computer geek puts the hard disk in the disk drive and the hard disk turns into software 
It does indeed. Like most hard disks do after being inserted into the disk drive. And he starts trying to figure out the password because it's like an encrypted floppy. <laughs> it's just a funny thing to say. And so it's a three inch floppy. Yeah, they're like, it's probably the birth date backwards. And he just, this guy who's some big hacker, like some big CIA, this is why they hired him for the job at the CIA, starts put, like typing in date codes. And as Jack Ryan and his, I guess, friend or partner, I don't, I don't know what his name was. Dan Murray, Bureau. Are walking away. He like, he calls out. He's like, I got it. It was the his birthday, his daughter's birth month, and his wife's birth year. But not backwards. I've hacked into Napster. I'm a hacker. It's in my blood. I run in Python scripts in my sleep. Yeah. What a pro. <laughs> what a pro. So with this Intel gold mine they find, what, the, what they dig into is his investment holdings. Jack Ryan just makes a beeline for it. I know a whole lot about investment funds. Mitch, I would, I would talk Trump back to you, but we've been... Heavily dissuaded by our viewers to not do Trump. Only by a couple. We had, it was 50-50, honestly, because some people were like, I wanted more of that. And some people were like, it was like Jack Baldwin does a better job at Trump than you guys do, which, well, yeah, duh. Yeah. <laughs> but. By the way, Jack Baldwin. Nice. Oh, yeah, Jack Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> I did it. Fuck. Uh, Alec Baldwin does a better Alec Baldwin does a better Jack Ryan and Donald Trump. That's why he gets paid millions do. of dollars for it on SNL. Yeah, it's like it's his job. Yeah, we're not here to be professional actors. We're here to be bad '90s movie reviewers and bad and impressionists. You know what? With that, you get bad Trump impressions, maybe the worst ever. So, Harden's taxes are totally, totally a hundred percent fine. There's nothing to see there. Nothing to see here. He doesn't need to file his taxes. He doesn't need to pay. But as fate would have it, Harden hasn't paid a dime in taxes for what, like three years? You got to put him in offshore accounts. That's what we do. That's what we do. We put him in offshore accounts. Put him in offshore accounts, you can't touch him. And then three years ago, Harden received a large infusion of foreign investment capital, which he invested wisely in 20 major shopping centers from Fort Worth to Atlanta. I say wisely because in the middle of the recession, he posted record profits, at least to the IRS, who he apparently feared more than his own partners. To them, according to the stockholder statements he was giving them, the shopping centers weren't doing nearly as well. They were. He was just skimming the lion's share of the profits, $650 million, and putting it in numbered accounts in Luxembourg, Panama, and the Cayman Islands. They killed him for it. It turns out the cartels killed him for the offshore accounts. Jack Ryan relays this information to the president in a meeting with all the chief staffs, yeah, chief yeah. of staffs. And the president's first thought is like, shit, what will the people think about this? What's going to happen when this gets out? What's going to happen to my ratings? My ratings are going to go through the floor. I have the highest approval rating of any president ever. He's kind of, he starts to kind of like workshop ideas of how to twist this to make it sound good. Not good, but make it sound less bad. Make it sound digestible for the American people. And Jack Ryan is like, well, no, 
I think the president actually asks, like, or he sees the look on Jack Ryan's face. He's like, well, what would you suggest? And Jack Ryan says, well, own it. Tell the truth. When they ask you if if you knew this Harden, say, yeah, he wasn't just a good friend of mine. He was a lifelong friend of mine. Like, own the truth and say, I didn't know he was doing this stuff. Give them no place to go. Um, nothing to report. No story. I mean, it's uh, no sense defusing a bomb after it's already it's already gone off. That's where this scene ends. And please add to the deleted scene pile. This movie was two hours and 20 minutes long. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. So we cut to a sniper scope. There's a sniper in the bush. And we see a training team trying to locate this sniper out in the bush. And we got DTB Defoe wearing the leather jacket of leadership among a few of these <laughs> army guys. Yeah, so we're back, we're back in uh, Panama or you know whatever, I guess, country they're operating in in South America. He's essentially vetting them for the mission that, at hand. He's, he's trying to find the stealthiest and the best that he can. And they're trying to find this guy in the bush there's like three guys with binoculars looking for him and they're standing looking for the sniper looking for the sniper and they're standing like 30 yards off to the side from a steel target and the sniper just keeps on pinging this target over and over again and they can't find him and the the commander is like telling his guys who are out there sweeping the the brush where to look he's there he's there and apparently he's been out there all day because they find his like burger that he had for lunch and then when they find like all right we give up the guy stands up and he's like 10 paces in front of them. Soldier, how did you get that close to me? Sniper, approach the instructor by being a sneaky bastard, Sergeant Major! Which, a little unrealistic. Realistically, a silent sniper rifle is not all that. It was, it was cool from movie magic. His and Chavez. it's none other than Tuco from Breaking Bad. It sure is, Zach. Raymond Cruz. Have you seen Breaking Bad, Mitch? I have. Finally, okay. I've seen something that you've mentioned. Nice. nice. Yeah, Chavez. He's a real that guy. He's been in a lot of stuff. He was also in The Rock. Right. As Very of kind the, of similar role. Yeah. You know, elite military guy. He, yeah. He's a real that guy, like SEAL Team 6. I think he really made hay, at least recently, as Tuco. Yeah. Like, at least for me, that's what he is like I, I see him and i see him doing lines of coke and screaming about how good it is and shit that's fair but for me it was he was very much like 90s action star and oh, when yeah. i saw breaking bad i was like oh it's the guy from the rock i guess i should accept that since this podcast is about 90s action movies i should accept that he's more of a 90s action than that guy than tuca definitely that guy chavez he's although i do have a theory about his this character's arc later in life oh do you oh yeah do you kind of share it now or is this for later in the pod I, i'll say this he becomes tuco salamanca oh after this and I, later i'll I love it. tarantino it and tell you how how that happens perfect dtb defoe is recruiting this guy for his special operation and tells him that he'll get choice of his assignment after the fact like move yourself to the front of the line for whatever you want to do in the military after the fact, after you get paid to do this assignment. So we know that Clark is amassing his elite squad of paramilitary operatives for Operation Reciprocity. He sure is, Mitch. His SEAL Team 6, D9. So the next scene, Ryan is 
in some sort of congressional hearing. It's like a committee chamber. Right. He's in some like a Washington legislative uh, hearing room. Some lady, some congresswoman. <laughs> some lady. <laughs> some lady. What's this, what's this woman doing in the government yeah. building? <laughs> gotta check my ass, man. Uh, some congresswoman. We gotta keep that misogyny out of the pot. <laughs> yeah, right. They can't know the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he, I think the purpose of this meeting is that he is trying to get extra funding to help fuel this operation. And I don't even think that Jack Ryan knows about reciprocity at all. All he's doing is going to the committee and saying, hey, oh, yeah. I, I'm trying to fight your war on drugs. I could really use some extra funding for this. You know, Greer's in the hospital. Some extra cash would help us really like start to pin down some leads find some suspects on this hardened case, et cetera, et cetera. And she's like, no troops. We don't want operations to be on the ground because it would be upsetting to the American people. And he's like, I give you my word, there won't be. No troops then. I enunciate that clearly because I don't want there to be any mistake. No troops. You could say I have your word on that. You could indeed because you do. Cut to two helicopters full of troops on a night mission coming into Panama. <laughs> yeah, Tuco and the boys. Tuco and the boys headed with the rest of SEAL Team 69 <laughs> to, to, get, to get up in this cocaine operation that the baddie drug lord is in charge of. That's obviously not what Ryan had in mind. But he doesn't know about it. But he doesn't so know about it. What, what Ryan don't know won't hurt him. At least not now. And we, we can tell this is very much a under-the-radar mission because DTB Defoe takes all of their dog tags and IDs before they drop out of the helicopter because this is incognito. If one of them gets killed in the line of duty, it's just some random dude. Yeah. No ties to America except for the M16, I guess. Let's them up. Dog tags. Take them off. Pass them forward. Check your pockets for anything that can be used for identification. We know where they are, essentially. They're somewhere in Colombia, and the reason we know that is they cut to showing this same drug lord from earlier that was doing batting practice. The drug lord is on the back of his via, whatever you want to call it, and you can hear helicopter blades in the distance. And yeah. he can hear it, and he's kind of looking around. Huh. And you can basically see... Like the, you know, I fucked up. You think that he, that's what he's thinking that moment? He's like, oh God, they're coming for me? Yeah, for sure. I mean, like, if I were in his shoes, I'd be thinking like, they're, they're dropping SEAL Team 69, <laughs> you know, maybe a mile away or two, and they're going to be kind of hacking and slashing their way up to my office. They're going to be at my doorstep by morning? Yeah, I'd be shitting bricks. So next thing clear and present danger graces us with is Jack Ryan attending another chiefs of staff meeting with the president. What he was after in this scene is the money. So the cash is still there. He was like sending the accountants to, to recover that money. Yeah, there you go. Send in SEAL Team 69's accountants. Yeah. This uh, connection between Harden and the cartels is... <laughs> A theory. Theory? 
a theory of mine. It's a theory. And Jack Ryan is like, dude, like we don't even know who really or where they are. Like we need someone to figure out where they are. Yeah. Somebody smart, somebody with an analytical mindset is who we need. And the president raises an eyebrow and says, I think I know someone just like that. Yeah. Why don't we send you down there, Jack? So, go down there and establish it. Go where? Columbia. Who, me? You say we need to have it clearly and presently. Go get it. Enter the funniest scene in all the Harrison Ford Tom Clancy movies. <laughs> I leave you alone for two weeks, and you walk straight into a big bear trap. I don't know what I was thinking. The funniest. After Jack Ryan's like, you you want me to go down there? We just hard cut to James Earl Jones lying horizontal on a household bed, cracking up. He's got the oxygen in his nose. I think the cracking up actually started before the scene even changed. He's like, you want me? And then you hear James Earl Jones laughing and then smash cut to him laying in the bed just like, oh, you walked right into that, you oh, asshole. Oh, it was great. I loved that. Yeah. That was th- so much fun. It was really great. It makes you love Greer even more. Yeah. He does also, in, at this moment, when he says, all right, well, you're headed down there, he tells him to watch Ritter like a hawk. He says, you know, Count Ritter, he can't go in the sunlight. He definitely has issues with crosses and um, running water. <laughs> running water? Yeah, that's vampire lore. They can't cross running water. Oh, I never heard of that. He says, watch out for Count Ritter. Keep a stake on you at all times. Maybe eat a lot of garlic, too. Have garlic yeah. breath. If you go to dinner with him, suggest Italian. Vampires don't do dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what he will do. In the next scene, we are back at SEAL Team 69 in Panama, and they are casing this cartel operation. And they're like looking at a, a small airstrip, and they're waiting for all the, the cartel lackeys to, to clear out. And then they run up, and they plant a very conspicuous bomb on a plane, which I was thinking they were going to plant the bomb and wait for them to take off and then, <laughs> and then blow it in the air because it would be more right. drastic and epic. But no, they just plant the bomb on the plane, they run out, blow it up. The chicken is in the pot, Owen. Cook it. The question I had here was, why do you need to send a guy to run out and expose himself when you could just RPG it or something? I mean, an RPG, I guess, wouldn't reap the destruction that this C4 charge does. Hmm. RPGs are like, I guess they're fairly localized explosions, but this is like a small hangar with like a uh, dual prop. Uh, it was a plane. Yeah, a plane. And a hangar. An a hangar. I feel like an RPG would render that plane useless. Yeah, it would It would render it useless, but would it destroy the cocaine? You know what, though? It's more fire. That's probably why. Michael Bay. In a Michael Bay movie, it's more fire. He's, Michael Bay stepped in to the studio at this moment and said, you know, you could RPG that or, and he smacks the C4 on the table, <laughs> hit it with this bad boy, <laughs> put a couple of gasoline barrels in the back of that thing. <laughs> and that's what they do. They blow it up. And well, baddie cartel 
what's uh how, what do you call a cartel drug lord like an official name yeah isn't there like a, a word for them uh you're asking the wrong guy man i'm just gonna call him batty uh I, I called him batty in my notes if you have something better I'm I'm all ears. Maybe we can call him like Colombian Ron Jeremy. <laughs> I just thought of that. <laughs> That's pretty good. Colombian Ron Jeremy, but instead of slinging dick, he slings bat. And Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat. <laughs> but not that kind of bat. Not that kind of bat. Anywho. A literal bat. Yeah, it gets back to Colombian Ron Jeremy. And he wants to know who's doing it, so he sends Antonio Ryan <laughs> to find out who the fuck's doing it. And around the same time, Jack Ryan is arriving in Bogota, and he lands on the he lands in Bogota, and the pilot's like, "All right, we're here." And the time is uh, oh, actually, it's the same time that it is in DC. Turns out we're in the same time zone. Uh, that was just kind of a funny I throwaway was funny scene. Too, yeah. Uh, but he's meeting this very southern lady down there who is uh, Fowler, and she's the DEA contact. Enter in... yet another character. Let's introduce another, Zach. Another character, DEA Fowler, a southern belle, is the contact for the DEA in Colombia. And she's just introduced as a character in this moment. Ryan gets to his hotel, and he's meeting up with Clark. He's meeting up with none other than... DTB Defoe. Uh, and they... Uh, sink, bro. That was very nice. They commiserate a little bit about Admiral Greer because I guess Greer and him were friends at some point or at least, you know, work buddies. And He just, calls him the best man. Yeah. He's the best. He's the best. They both agree. Greer's the best. And, uh, you know, Ryan says, I'm looking into this. I need to figure out what the deal is with this cartel. Which one was it that knocked off Harden? Which one made Harden floppy? And DTB Defoe name drops a coffee company. You a coffee drinker, Dr. Ryan? Yeah, I like coffee. Try the Lindo brand. Lindo. And alludes to the fact that it's a front. Yeah, it's one of those things he says it in like the most conspicuous way ever. I think you'll like it. He just straight up says, are you a coffee drinker, Jack? And he says, no. He's like, well, in that case, you should try <laughs> Lindo Coffee. That's Lindo, L-I-N-D-O. Once again, look into Lindo. Never touch the stuff. <laughs> uh, so Ryan phones up the president and is like, I think it's this guy. But the problem is the Colombian government also wants that 650 mil that Harden was squirreling away. Yeah, I, I guess the I guess Ryan is worried that the Colombian government is like, no, 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 we profit off off corruption that happens here. Like we get a cut of our own corruption. Yeah, that that shit's ours, dog. <laughs> and <laughs> this is the best part because guess what? The president's like, no problem. Let me just send another character down to you <laughs> in Colombia. <laughs> I've got another guy to handle that. Yeah, I have someone else that that is totally not relevant to the larger plot of this movie that I can send down there. Jacobs will come down. He'll take care of it. He'll negotiate. Yes, sir. This is our money. 
He was so irrelevant. I didn't write him down. I just said he sends another guy down. The only way he's relevant, and this is also throwaway, is that he's the dude who Moira is a secretary for. Okay. That's which somewhat it, relevant. I think they were attempting to make uh, the whole Antonio Ryan. They were trying to ramp up the tension by him being that close to Jack Ryan and his family, maybe harking back a little bit to Patriot Games, the way that Sean Murray was... I want to know where Sean Miller and Kevin O'Donnell are. Like, going after Ryan's family? Right. It's it's just two degrees of separation from Ryan's family in that Antonio Ryan... <laughs> Antonio Ryan uh, no, is fucking Moira, who's a friend of Kathy. Sigh. We go back to uh, Tuco and the boys. They find a cartel cook lab in the jungle. They're just kind of walking through the brush and find some trap doors, which lead to, yeah, like a uh, cook lab. A fairly sizable one. Oh, it's huge. Tuco is like, wait, you can like make this much money slinging coke? I saw this coming. I can see the future, you know? It's the skip that I have deep inside my head. I keep that in mind. <laughs> he sure is, Zach. <laughs> so they just straight up demo it. They yeah. set some charges, blow that shit up with it's full no of regard for all the people that are inside. It's full of indentured servants. There are no less than maybe from our perspective, which is pretty narrow. But there are no less than 30 or 40 people in there. Yeah. And we see some of them are like teenagers. Yeah. A couple of them are coming out of a trap door. And one of the SEAL Team 69 guys sees them and they see him. And the shots start going off and shit hits the fan. And somebody takes a C4 charge and throws it down there. And kaboom. Gigantic explosion. Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat, he he comes to the scene of the destruction and he's like fucking furious. He's swinging his bat all around his head, and he he wants blood. He's out for blood at this point. Like find out who's doing it, Antonio Ryan, and 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 bring him to me so I can hit them in the kneecaps with my bat. And so Moira, that is the other redhead, that is Kathy's friend, that's dating Antonio Ryan, or at least occasionally fucking him who we know is Antonio Ryan, but she knows as Roberto. We're sorry, viewers. It's just as confusing for you as it is for us. Yeah. We get Moira calling up Banderasi Ryan because Jacobs, her boss is going out of town for a couple of days. Moira, why don't you call in sick tomorrow and the next day? I won't tell anybody as in down to Bogota. She's got a couple of days off to get down with her mysterious Latin lover. Unfortunately, he puts her down. He comes to meet her. She's staying in some cabin in the woods. He pulls up, and they start kind of coughing a little bit. He's kissing her neck. And as he's doing it, he kind of leans back, and then he snaps her neck and and kills her. And that's him tying up his loose ends up in in America. Yeah, what a rewarding... Part of the plot. Yeah. Remember that character that didn't really need to be there? She's dead now. The president is at a press conference, 
and he drops the bomb that they're going to seize the money that has been profiteered from these cartels from his buddy Hardin. They're going to seize it and they're going to use it for the, you know, whatever the fuck they feel like to benefit the American people, of course. Everyone is watching this at the same time. It's Colombian Ron Jeremy, Jack Ryan, and Bandersi Ryan. <laughs> they're all watching at the same time. Oh, shit. Which is kind of funny because, of course, Jack Ryan's sitting here like, fuck, once again, I'm shooting myself in the foot by giving him this information. After seeing this and finding out that Moira's boss is coming to town, Bandersi Ryan is making a plan with police bikes. You see him like pointing to a couple places on a map to one of his lackeys, and they're like putting police decals on them, and then he heads out. Then Moira's boss arrives with his suit crew in the airport in Bogota, and they get in a big old convoy of a bunch of Chevy Suburbans with police bikes and head into town. So this police escort of like shitty dirt bikes with cops on them yeah it's, it's what like two two dirt bikes yeah flanking like six suburbans or tahoes or something yeah six like white government suburbans but they're clearly not the nice ones that you get in america that are like bulletproof they're just regular old chevys and this 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 police escort is leading them through i guess bogota proper and a mustachioed man on a dirt bike, who we have seen previously to be one of Banderasi Ryan's, I guess his like right-hand man or whatever, this one guy, he joins the procession, shoots one of the other bike cops, and just joins the... Oh, yeah. Oops. What the fuck? Like, why did nobody hear that gunshot? I expected him to at least just like pistol whip the guy and knock him off, but no. He pulls out his unsilenced pistol and murks the guy in broad daylight on a city street and then just joins the the caravan like it's nothing. Yeah, I don't know. And he, he proceeds to drive to the front of the entourage while like mean mugging every car he passes in the U.S. government convoy. He drives past every car and looks in as if he's looking for someone. And everyone looks back at him, or at least in Ryan's car, they do. Like, hey, who the fuck is that guy? Like, oh, yeah. I guess that's just, um, you know, Juan. He's just the guy who's a little jittery on his dirt bike. So this mustachioed right-hand man to Banderasi Ryan makes his way to the front of the pack, where somehow he supersedes the direction of the front. Somehow he takes over the, uh, the lead dirt bike, the one who's escorting them. I yeah. think it's pretty clear what happens here, Zach. His mustache game is very strong. So as soon as he gets within eyesight of the lead dirt bike cop, that guy looks over, sees the mustache. He realizes he's outranked. And so he defers to the other guy <laughs> to let him, oh, oh, I, I'm sorry, sir. You take this one. I'm not calling shots here, clearly. Yeah. So mustache man takes him on a pretty obvious unplanned for detour. They turn down a very narrow alley, which, again, like, how did no one notice this? Shouldn't everyone be aware of the flight plan, so to speak, for where everyone's going? You would think. And they lead him into this alley. 
Everyone's closing up their doors. You see a bunch of dudes on the roof, left and right, as they pass through with AKs. And it's an ambush. A bazooka is launched and knocks out the suburban in the front. Another one knocks out the one in the back. Ryan is shouting to, to back up. And they do, but they kind of get hit by the bazooka. And then Jack Ryan's like pushing the dead driver out of the out of the front of the car and he takes over driving. They get hit again. Everyone's getting shot up. They're cornered. They're all running out of the car. Like I think they're suburban and one other are the only ones that have survived at this point. And the, the survivors are like running into a, an alcove getting shot. It is not looking good. Like everyone's getting shot left and right. There's one more running suburban that's empty. They run out. Ryan takes the wheel with like the one final guy and they they end up like pushing their way through the gate that was closed and it ends with Ryan being the sole survivor of this whole posse of government officials. It was a crazy sequence not just <clears throat> by virtue of the action and all the death and gore and stuff that happened but Ryan like saved at least one person's life, drove his way and reversed his way out of this alleyway, dodged several RPG shots. And then, yeah, it was the only one that survived out of who knows how many people and bodyguards and trained field agents. And this scene, while I was watching this, it literally, you know, it, it suspended my disbelief because here we are again discussing who is Jack Ryan really? Looking back at the Red October, Alec Baldwin's Jack Ryan is this meek analyst. Anytime he goes anywhere, he goes, God, just send a memo next time. This isn't my element. I'm supposed to be just typing away. But Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan shines in these action moments. Oh, yeah. And it made me wonder, like, when Harrison Ford accepts this role does he say i gotta be the action hero like i'm not gonna be some pencil pusher like you gotta have me in these action scenes i'm not gonna do that red october bullshit <laughs> like i gotta i gotta actually like save some people's lives and shoot people and all this great me wonder like is that part of his role did you did you notice that too or did, did that cross your mind i found it interesting that the analyst character so interesting. is the one who has the agency in a situation of fight or flight to play his cards and play them well. Like, why is he the one who makes it out? I kind of imagine Harrison Ford or Jack Ryan as a character saying, God damn it, why do I have to be the main character? <laughs> you know, pushing his way out and watching all of his friends die. Really, it's only the one friend. It was the same guy who was, like, talking with the acne-ridden techie earlier. Dan Murray, Bureau. Who is another character that you were supposed to be able to keep track of, I guess, who got killed. But no, I, I agree. It's, it is interesting to see. I think it could have been shot differently where it doesn't make Harrison Ford out to be the hero of the encounter because that's truly what he is. He's the only person that's left alive through virtue of his quick thinking, driving skills, ability to assess where you know shooters are rather than just kind of like muddling through and somehow I made it. He's like the most badass of all the people there. I guess in a way it's it's the same Harrison Ford occupies the same headspace as his character in Patriot Games. Because when the IRA attacks the royal family in the middle of the street, what does he do? He fucking charges them. He sees what's going on. He sees that he can make a difference, and so he does. And he does the same thing here. Yeah, he's the only one who got out alive, but 
he got a lot of other people much closer to getting out than they other would, otherwise yeah. would have been. So everyone is getting news of this attack in Bogota. Kathy sees it. She's watching the news of this terrible attack where dozens of American citizens and government officials are have been murdered in Colombia. And the first thing she says to her husband, who she knows is down there, is... Kathy. Don't tell me you're in this thing. Which I thought was just... I just thought it was like the coldest sort of, oh, hey, honey, are you okay? She sees that the convoy got destroyed, and she gets a call, and she's the first thing she says, she doesn't even say, hello, is this Jack? Is my husband alive? She says, don't tell me you're in on this. It's the same woman that drives a Porsche while his husband drives a four-tour station wagon or something? A mom wagon, yeah. Yeah. It's clear here why she drives the Porsche. But yes, she may as well drive a BMW yeah. with blinkers never been used without any signals used in this scene. <laughs> so the president's also watching at the same time and he wants the gloves to come off. And he alludes to this to his hairline advisor. How stupid are these people? Believe they can do anything. You know what? They're wrong. Yes, sir. They're wrong. Directly challenge the sovereign power of the United States. Yeah, we cut to Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat having a birthday party for his daughter or niece or something. Can I just interject here and say, never have a birthday party if you're the bad guy. If you have a oh, birthday yeah. party in the span of the time of the movie, it's going to go badly for you at some point in the near future. Whether it's your own birthday party or your niece's birthday party, whatever. Don't have a birthday party. Bad it's, choices. It's definitely a trend in Hollywood that bad guy has a party, bad guy has shit coming his way very soon. <laughs> On this, the day of my daughter's birthday. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. You said you come into my house on the day my daughter's to be married and you ask me to do murder. Money. I haven't seen the Godfather movies. Mitchell. Is this a confession booth? Mitchell, I forgive you. It is a confession booth. Yes. Forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. I have not seen The Godfather Part 1, 2, or 3. At least you know what that was from. I'll give you that. He's getting antsy because he knows that the U.S. is, is probably coming for him. He heard the helicopters the night before. And so he's afraid that they're going to think that he's the one who pulled off this assassination of this convoy. He's exclaiming to Banderasi Ryan that he didn't do it. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't. I wish I had done it. They deserve it. But it wasn't me. Who did then? You know, you have no answers. I got the sense Banderasi Ryan was like, yeah, okay, whatever, man. Well, no, he he actually implores to Colombian Ron Jeremy. You don't want to hear an answer. Yes, I do. It was done to look like you did it by one of the others, as you suspected. It's always a friend who hates you most. Give me the phone. So Batty calls up another drug lord, one of his buddies. And it's kind of a funny scene because the guy that he calls is like, 
Pankhurst. Did you do this thing? Did I do this thing? Are you calling to ask me if I did this thing? Are you asking me if I did this? It was the weirdest dialogue. I know we laughed when we watched it. We did. But they, they suggest set up a meeting. And while they're on the phone, we see a server room somewhere populated by Americans where they're triangulating where the phone call is taking place. When Ryan does, in fact, come home, there's a big military escort of all these coffins being loaded into various hearses, like on the runway. And coming away from that, Jack Ryan's with Kathy, and she tells him about Moira dying. Moira, you remember Jacob's secretary. I know Moira, honey. What are you talking about? And that's when they're at, I guess, Moira's house, and they're checking the voicemails. I think they're just going pouring through the evidence, and one of the pieces of evidence is just like the answering machine. They get the one where Banderasi Ryan had called Moira to say, like, hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna come meet you and, and she picked it up late. The machine is still on, Moira. Hi. You have a recording of the killer's voice. Maybe. He's asking her about like who's this guy that Moira's seeing. Oh yeah. And she says he's like a Latin Jack Ryan, according to her. And <laughs> Harrison Ford's like, that's enough for me. The point is he's Latin. Latin is enough for me to pursue this lead. Right. Can't be two Jack Ryans running around. They have a voice. Ryan deduces that the answering machine message, that's the killer's voice. And sometime later, somebody in like the Langley lab is able to tie, I guess, the waveform of his voice and link it with who they loosely knew as the Banderasi Jack Ryan. They had some like Shutterstock footage of him speaking at some other point as a suspect and something else. And they, they're able to connect him and figure out that it's Felix Cortez, a.k.a. Don Juan, a.k.a. Banderasi Jack Ryan. And they all, it was also like the kind of throwaway Tom Clancy type of technology babble. Mm-hmm. But like, oh, we can tell where he was educated and how old he is and what region he's from yeah. and if he's gay and <laughs> <laughs> it's bullshit yeah, but it's like okay it's just like a let's just flex this 90s FBI audio tech yeah so latin's enough for jack ryan they figure out it's him we cut to an aircraft carrier in the gulf of panama and they're f14s on the deck and they're launching and wouldn't you know that it's part of operation reciprocity We've got DTB Defoe tagging a target with Tuco. Target is set. It's the house where Colombian Ron Jeremy has set this meet with all the local drug lords. Yeah, so like all the players in town are at this one mansion. Fernandez, Vega, looks like a full house. And Tuco and Clark are like, well... Now's our chance. Let's blow that shit sky high. Let's just, let's just like wipe everyone out. That will take care of this whole war on drugs problem if we just kill everyone, right? And at the last second before the missile comes in, they see like some, you know, kids, eight years old, something like that, playing soccer in the backyard, which is well within the splash zone of this missile. Problematic. He he kind of gives DTB Defoe the look of, uh, are we going to call this off? And he's like, 
nah, B. Yeah. <laughs> stay, so, on, stay on target. Yeah. So as, as like the, the missile is beyond the point of no return, they're still just watching and they see another car drive up and they're like, oh shit, like we missed somebody. Yeah, Colombian Ron Jeremy is like driving up the dirt path to the house the second it explodes. He, I guess he was late to his own party, and thank goodness for him. And sure enough, everybody dies. Except for that one car that was driving up, which happens to have Colombian Ron Jeremy and inside of it. And Banderasi Ryan. Both right. of them. Gosh, 30 seconds more and you would have had everybody. So back in the AI voice booth, Ryan is seeing this news breaking of a bombing of a of a cartel's mansion with lots of people dead. And he's getting suspicious. It encourages him to dig a little deeper into this bombing. He's not here, he's not here. Cortez, he's not here. Um, why was operations copied on this? Ritter requested it. Ritter, huh? You look very nice today. Meanwhile, hairline advisor and Count Ritter are talking about the bombing, and hairline advisor's like, man, I didn't really want all this collateral damage with this operation. And Count Ritter's like, it is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> He's just very cold about it. You said it was going to be a surgical strike. It was. It was perfect. That's a kid they just brought out on NBC. Take the gloves off. Hurt them. That's what you said. We killed one, two, three, three children. <laughs> <laughs> the scene that's coming up was one of the funnest scenes in the movie to me. And it felt very characteristic of Jack Ryan. This is what I think Jack Ryan is supposed to be. Not action hero Jack Ryan. He he's looking at like the analysis of what happened, like what was the actual explosion, what caused it. The news reports that the car bomb. What happens when a so car bomb? So he looks at it with a couple of you know, texts from the lab, whatever. Right. Blows up. And Ow. they're looking at well, Missile. like a car bomb though has like this kind of explosion pattern. A missile strike this has this That's kind of explosion pattern. And on top of that. There's no uh, shrapnel from a car bomb, but there is this like still be in it. cellulose the truck, whatever, would still debris be in the from this one special type of like kind of top secret and, uh, in the missile. Yeah, and Lots of at the same time, Europe, like the US, totally concurrent with Jack Ryan doing this, they show Banderas and Jack Ryan trying to figure out bomb. how their crib got blown up. But and that's not I think it's. His team that sees that there's cellulose residue, residue as well as um, some other components that help them narrow in on what it is. And at about the same time, at least in the movie, they find that it's a, it had to have come from an American made missile that is a cellulose encased explosive device. Latin Jack Ryan indeed. He proves himself to be that. Oh. In this scene, I feel like he doesn't. He looks oh. nothing like Harrison Ford. 
But I, know. I guess he has some deductive reasoning to him. Yeah. So in the next scene, hairline advisor is getting a fax in the middle of the night. And it's from none other than Banderas Ryan. And he wants to meet in Panama. We have something else in common. We both know there are American troops in Colombia fighting an illegal war. I will be staying at the Hotel Paloma de Oro in Panama City on Wednesday. I suggest we meet. And that like sends chills down uh, hairline advisor's spine because no one's supposed to know that. So then we have Bandersi Ryan meeting hairline advisor in Panama. Turns out Bandersi Ryan is very short. <laughs> like I noticed when he came into the room, he was like at least a head shorter than like the security guy that's with hairline advisor. But he says that he can take care of Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat and then help the U.S. restructure and regulate the drug trade. And he offers regular arrests, 50% less drug traffic, and in return, all he wants is for them to kill SEAL Team 69. Imagine that. Dramatic seizures, drastic reductions, no more senseless violence. You'll have your victory. It's pretty strong selling points. Like, from the perspective of a very unscrupulous politician, it's checking all the boxes of what they want. Wrangle the drug trade in. All you have to do in return is give away some intel that would lead to five Americans dying. Again, I'm not saying that's a good deal. I'm saying like to this guy, that's a shitty, a shitty dude. For a hairline advisor who has a questionable moral compass, yeah, it's very appealing. And I think it's not clear at in this scene what happens, but we know that he ends up taking this deal. Back to James Earl Jones in the hospital. He's really not doing well. The good news is Ryan had his guys down there in Panama too. And he was able to get some pictures and audio from this meeting between Banderasi Ryan and Hairline Advisor. And he's a little depressed because he's starting to see the corruption that exists in the government and in the intelligence agencies that he works for. He doesn't like seeing the National Security Advisor making dirty deals with uh, cartel-adjacent dudes and he's he's a little afraid to keep digging and see what he finds but greer is reassures him and reminds him of his oath not to his office but to the people themselves so jack ryan comes back to the cia office he's suspecting something is up you know something there's a disconnect and something's going on that he's not aware of so he asks the same analyst from before that Hacked into the system with the the birthday password. Yeah, that, because he could decrypt or guess a six-digit password to a f- floppy disk. <laughs> Nerd! Oh, that isn't very nice. That's your man. Yeah. So he's, he's asking this guy to break into Count Raider's system. Very subtly. Yeah. He's like, I have a big job for you. And the guy's like, well, what, what, what's the job? And he just looks at him with the Harrison Ford withered stare until the guy gets the point. Well, we're way beyond birthdays now. I'm going to have to write a special program here. Yeah, interesting scene. And the guy does it. He hacks, he gets Jack Ryan's computer to be like a virtual machine, I guess, into 
Count Ritter's computer. But after Ryan starts kind of farting around, the analyst is like, Yeah, I forgot to tell you. After you get the code, wait until he's off his system before you log on because he will know it when you do. Jesus, Petey, it's too late. Oh, my God. While Jack Ryan is, like, trying to creep on Ritter's files, Ritter starts deleting them. Yeah, he sees, like, user 422 online in the bottom left of his screen. Yeah. And starts just purging his hard disk. Right, before it goes soft. So Jack Ryan manages to like screenshot, screen print some files and print them out. But the printer's out of paper. Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny. All these problems. I, I, I feel like this was a, a point where the 90s lack of tech savvy would kick in and you'd be like, oh no, the printer's out of paper. But now we're like, it, it's fine. It'll hold the job until you put paper in it. Right. You know, but he's freaking out. And the- or save the screenshot. Like, yeah. It'll be fine. So he got like the one screenshot of like a file that had some incriminating language on it before everything's deleted. And he runs over to Count Ritter's office right across from his. He opens up the door, grabs his Nerf gun, and he runs down to Ritter's office. (laughs) And he just like waves it in his face. And he's like, you're going to jail, punk. Nerf jail. Yeah. You know, they, they exchange some not-so-pleasant pleasantries, and Count Ritter is like, oh, yeah? Do you have direct authorization from the president? And shows him the letter of authorization to run this with pretty much full discretion. You don't have one of these, do you, Jack? And Ryan is pissed. I'm just getting really just kind of T.O.'d. And he just very angrily walks back to his office. Yeah. So we know that Ryan at this point is going to start trying to figure out a way to get back at pretty much everyone. Yeah, he's got to start making a plan. He's sitting with Kathy, uncertain of how to get out of the mess that he's in. He's at a loss. He doesn't know what to do. And to make matters worse, to add insult to injury, he gets a call and Greer has died. Yep. In the next scene... The The president of the United States is speaking at Admiral Greer's funeral, and everybody's there. Count Ritter and Ryan are having, you know, a a glare battle at each other. And while this is going on, you get the back and forth between the president's speech, which is supposed to be poignant, but it kind of falls on deaf ears knowing how... He's kind of corrupt. At the same time, Banderasi Ryan has his guys closing in on SEAL Team 69 because he he knows where they are now. He's made the deal. He's in a news helicopter. (laughs) He's closing in on them in his news helicopter. DTB Defoe is trying to get in touch with his team, and he can't. And we just get this back and forth between SEAL Team 69 getting slaughtered and Harrison Ford witheredly staring at the president and, Wh- and Ritter and at his own grief about Greer. And it was kind of, this was probably the most poignant part of the movie, in my opinion, because SEAL Team 69 is getting fucked in the ass. <laughs> Super poignant. SEAL Team 69 is getting just <laughs> slaughtered. And the gunfire of like the automatic weapons in that segment 
fades into the snare drum in at the funeral for the America America song. And it, it like fades back and forth really well. And for some reason SEAL Team 69 is running through the river. They've just like gotten out of their cover and they're running in the open and they're all getting shot up. And the speech ends and the song ends and we expect the one manly tear from Jack Ryan but we don't get it. But what we can agree on is that this is the worst funeral Jack Ryan's ever been to. For sure. It for sure is. And DTB Defoe and Tuco, Tuco and the boys, are just in shambles right now. Tuco and the boys are getting lit up, getting decimated. Um, and Clark is pretty much beside himself, just so flustered with trying to get in touch. He's, he, he, he doesn't know what to do. He gets a call from Count Ritter, and Ritter tells him Jack Ryan knows about the investigation. They had to cut the communication lines. So Count Ritter tells Clark, Clark, maybe you're not hearing me. There is no air. There is nothing. We are shut down. I'm on a plane. I'm going to kill him. If you get rid of the problem, which is Ryan, then you'll be able to get your boys back as alive as possible. So that was a fucking lie. I'll re-up the satellite link for you, and we'll get your shit back in order and going again if you take out Jack Ryan. But don't worry, he's coming to you. Because right before this, Jack Ryan gets a call from our good friend, uh, the Southern Lady, Fowler, from the DEA in Columbia. And she intercepted radio signals of SEAL Team 69 getting fucked in the ass. Jack, what do you want me to do with this? Make a copy, Gene. Make ten copies. those guys down there and so ryan knows that the operation that was unsanctioned by him that he totally would not have gone along with has had the plug pulled and they're just going to get left down there and him being the boy scout and the good person that he is is like well fuck i gotta get down there and do something about it so he's headed right into clark's clutches when ryan is basically like trying to call a cab at the Colombian airport Clark accosts him and basically takes him hostage pistol whips his ass right takes Ryan back to his pad I guess this is supposed to be a moment of suspense for the audience because we haven't seen what happened but DTB Defoe is on the phone with Ritter and he says I killed Ryan now put the line back on and Count Ritter shows his character as he has many times and just silently hangs up the phone not holding up his end of the bargain. Yeah. In bird culture, this is considered a dick move. And then we see Jack Ryan is actually still alive, sitting directly across from him. And it's kind of seen now that they're kind of wordlessly working together now that they know that Ritter was really the problem the whole time. Well, they're about to be, because Jack Ryan was bound and gagged until DTB Defoe figured out that Count Ritter... Is not a man of his word, and he's a piece of shit. Right. So Clark and Ryan, they're on the same team. They're on the same page. They're trying to bring the boys home. Yeah, Ryan's like, I'm here to help. What do you need? 
And DTB Defoe's like, I need a fucking helicopter. So they go to like your local junkyard, your helicopter junkyard. They've got one helicopter at this junkyard. Is it a junkyard? I just thought it was like a, I don't know. I kind of assumed it was maybe a cartel who owned it and maybe that cartel got wiped out in the bombing. And so they didn't really have a anybody to fl- to want to fly it anymore. And so I try and make one joke. I'm this guy s- crawls all the way up my ass. <laughs> but that joke, in fairness, was not funny at all. It I want to know what the joke is now. That was a I junkyard? was just calling that a junkyard. That's offensive. Terrible joke. <laughs> Worst joke ever. That joke has no business in the Oval Office. So he needs a helicopter. So they go to the like CD strip bar where DTB Defoe's pilot is hanging out, and he's just in like a a drunken stupor. To go home? I'm not done talking to me. He is so drunk. They pick his head up, and he's just like catatonic. They drag him out and take him to uh, some random place that has a helicopter in the jungle, very nondescript. But there's an old uh, Colombian man sitting at the table, and Harrison Ford's like, "I'd like to rent your helicopter." And dude says, "Sorry, we don't rent it anymore, but it is for sale." Uh, how much is it? Two million dollars. Um, my pilot and I would have to take it for a test flight. Yes, of course. You just have to leave a deposit. How much is that? Two million dollars. Um, would you take a company check? And so he writes him a check for two million dollars for this helicopter, and they take it. DTB Defoe and Jack Ryan start combing through the jungle via helicopter, looking for any sign of their guys. And they find a guy laying face down in the muck. I need to record that. <laughs> no kidding. So they find... So they're, they're coming through. I, we we got to go back and listen to that one. <laughs> <laughs> Look at that guy. It's yeah. gigantic. It's like, yeah, yeah. Did I duplicate it? I didn't even. Not even you close. That, yeah. He's a modern savage. So they're, they, they come across a body laying face down in a creek. So they, they land the helicopter nearby. As they're kind of poking around, looking for more clues of where everybody might be, a version of Tuco that's straight out of I shouldn't be alive pops up who's been just like scavenging in the jungle for like a week runs up to them and is basically like ready to strangle DTB Defoe thinking he left him for dead and Jack Ryan jumps and is like no 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 no, it's my fault relax and Jack Ryan diffuses the situation Tuco's alright they kind of figure out that what they're really after is getting to the bottom of this drug situation. Well, that, and they also want to save as many of SEAL Team 69 as they can. Of course. And uh, Tuco's like, yeah, I buried the bodies, but they took the captain and a couple other people with them. But how do we find them? Right. And Ryan says, well, Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat, I bet, knows. God knows where they are now. Escobedo knows. 
What are you gonna do? Knock on his door? Good morning. I'd like to see Ernesto Escobedo. I don't have an appointment. What are you gonna do? Knock on the door? And so he does. Yeah. He hitches a ride on like a farm truck, a Colombian farm truck, waltzes up to Colombian Ron Jeremy's cocaine acquired mansion and knocks on the door and shows his card once again to the guards at the gatehouse. This is where the movie actually started to get good for me. Yeah, at like two hours in. Do you think that the suspension on that farm truck had trouble um, carrying Jack Ryan with the size of his balls? Um, No, because I don't think the suspension was working at all because it was totally bottomed out. That bumper was dragging. Yeah, dragging its ass. So they they bring him in, they pat him down, they take nothing but a tape recorder off of his person, and they lead him to Colombian Ron Jeremy with a bat. And they sit down in his lavish living room, and he's like, how can I help you, Deputy Director of Intelligence of the Central Intelligence Agency? And he's like, yeah, I uh, I'm looking to figure out some stuff about this uh, coffee buyer and associate. They unexpectedly disappeared yesterday. I'm very concerned. Coffee buyer. Mm. It's very important to me to find them. Coffee buying is becoming a very dangerous business. Yes. Yes, well, it was for Peter Harden. Who? Ryan name drops Harden. Immediately. And uh, Ron Jeremy's like, who? I don't know who the fuck that is. I know nothing about this man. And Ryan's like, does a name like Lindo mean anything to you? Huh? Mm-hmm. He basically says that uh, Bandarasi Ryan has sold him out and asks to bring, asks the guard to bring the tape recorder back. And they play the tape. Without knowing what's on the tape, we jump to the next scene. And it's Ryan and Columbia. There's me so many pauses to to edit out in this one. We're trying to remember the stupid names we've come up yeah. with. There's and it's Ryan and Colombian Ron Jeremy in a truck heading over to visit their friend Banderasi Ryan. As they arrive, the mustachioed man from the dirt bike convoy destruction scene earlier. By the way, can can I just say that like, isn't this an idiotic move? Like you know he's trying to take over and kill you. Why go visit him personally? This is a big dick move by a big dick swinging drug lord. He's the head of a cartel. He feels like a powerful man. It seems a little strange for it to be just him and like one or two escorts and Ryan. Yeah. To go after him. Especially when like it's been slowly revealed that Banderasi Ryan is really the brains of this outfit. He's been plotting the whole time. He, he's been, he's behind everything. Like for all we know, he might be the one who goaded Colombian Ron Jeremy to kill Harden in the first place. He's the one who got him to call up his buddy and, and arrange the meeting of the cartels to have them destroyed. He's the one who went to the hairline advisor and got him to make a deal. This whole time, his end goal has been, I'm going to take over the fucking cartels and stake my claim in all this business and live like a king. So you would think going to 
leverage or kill or whatever this guy, arrest him. I'm not sure what Jack Ryan's plan was here, but you would think you'd bring more than just a couple of guys with Uzis. Totally. They get there, and mustachioed dirt bike rider guy sees them enter, and he kind of hides away in the shadows. And then this next part is great because they confront Bandersi Ryan, and Bandersi Ryan is like brought into the room, and Jack Ryan's sitting on the chair, and he's smoking a Cuban. I love that too. Like he's really embracing the local culture. Yeah, Ron Jeremy's got his bat, and he's ready to knock in some kneecaps. They catch a man, Darcy Ryan, in a lie, and they play the tape for him, the one that Jack Ryan brought, and it's of course the footage that he got earlier of Van Darcy Ryan talking to the hairline advisor. What am I supposed to and do? he starts swinging. Yep. Before he can land a blow, mustachio man guy has reflexes of a fucking cat and starts shooting. Yeah, he busts in from behind with an Uzi and kills Ron Jeremy with a bat. I didn't have the same awareness that you did throughout the movie to notice this guy as many times. I noticed him as the motorcycle rider that led them into the ambush and here. He was in there like three or four other times. They did not establish him with as much attention as they did some of the other unnecessary characters. But where Banderasi Ryan is the right-hand man to Ron Jeremy with a bat, mustachioed guy is the right-hand man to Banderasi Ryan. Established via his actions. This man never has a single line of dialogue. Get up. He's in like four or five scenes in total. My question is, what is it with the hunt for October and clear and present danger having random sideshow characters have incredibly pivotal moments. It's interesting, yeah, because the cook in the hunt for October was the very annoying saboteur. Yeah. Saboteur? Nah, I don't know. Saboteur. We know what you mean. <laughs> I speak English. Words come very easily to me. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I don't know. I... I found it kind of annoying that this like shadow character jumped out of nowhere and he changed the whole dynamic of the movie and I can get behind that, but it's happened twice now in these, in the Tom Clancy movies. It's a, it's a Tom Clancy trope. I guess so. I guess whenever the stakes, whenever the odds swing into the favor of the protagonist, you need that guy to come in and swing him back the other way because mustachioed man comes in and he just like, peppers the room with Uzi fire. He kills Ron Jeremy and his two lackeys at the same time, Mrs. Jack Ryan and Banderasi Ryan. He gets sniped almost immediately by Tuco through the window. Tuco and DTB Defoe are off in the distance, like watching this happen. Just in time. Just in time. And then the fight between... Jack Ryan and Banderasi Ryan, the fight of the Ryans, <laughs> begins. It's fairly short. They they both land a couple punches and then Banderasi Ryan escapes into the coffee plant. And it's from here forward a suspenseful cat and mouse game of Banderasi Ryan and Ryan trying to find each other. DTB Defoe joins up with Ryan and they're traipsing through the alleyways and almost like a sewer setting. It's industrial. It's all concrete. There's water flowing. There's steam. 
very 90s uh, <laughs> pan-ultimate action scene. And they're, the suspense is building as they're trying to hide from and at the same time find Banderasi Ryan. And it ends up with them finding the prisoners and extracting them. And then they run into Tuco. But for whatever reason, Ryan has been split up from DTB Defoe and yeah, Tuco. Yeah, it was weird how that... I, I don't know how they did that. I think he was like trying to distract for a minute or whatever. It was a stupid move. Yeah. Anyway, Tuco and WTB, WTB Defoe make it the Huey. But Ryan and Bandarasi Ryan <laughs> are in like... I guess some basement area it's of like a the coffee plant. It's like a giant woodshed or yeah, something? Yeah, it's weird. Anyway, they like get into a tussle, and um, Bandersi Ryan gets knocked down while Jack Ryan basically like escapes through the roof. He covers him in a, well, he lures him in with a tape recorder and then attacks him, knocks his gun out of his hand, and then like they end up fighting against one of these giant piles of wood, and it falls on Bandersi Ryan, and that's when. Jack Ryan's like, mm-hmm. let me ditch. And so he gets out through the roof and pulls the James Bond. And like, as the Huey is taking off, he jumps on and grabs with his arms onto like the landing ski, I guess, for lack of a better term, an helicopter. Yeah. And so as they're kind of flying off, Banderasi Ryan shows his ugly head and starts shooting at him as they're flying off. And, uh, Tuco kind of unceremoniously takes him out. It was a it was a fitting end. I felt like it, in a, in the way that they they just don't give him the time of the day. They just shoot him. That's it. There's no epic end to, to Banderasi Ryan, the true antagonist of this movie. He just you just see him get caught a couple times in the chest with a, a machine gun fire. Scene change. Did it strike you that all the bad guys in this scene had stormtrooper aim? Oh, absolutely. This, this Huey is like 50 feet at best from the roof of this building and they have automatic weapons and they're on the roof. Like, they'd be able to shoot the Huey. And yeah, I, I mean, I think they hit the Huey, but they hit some, like the metal where no one is at or behind. I mean, it's the 90s. All the henchmen are stormtroopers. It's the same extras probably playing the parts. <laughs> so... They're away. They get out of there on the Huey. Smash cut to Jack Ryan meeting the president once again, just as Count Ritter and Hairline Advisor are exiting the Oval Office. And the president is trying to gloss over everything and imply that, you know, we've got to lie about this. This this shit never happened. But Ryan big dogs the president. He stands up for himself and says, I'm not going to do that. You should never make important decisions while you're upset. You did. And American soldiers and innocent civilians are dead because of it. I never ordered no, any... No, don't even think about playing that game with me. I will not let you dishonor their memories by pretending you had nothing to do with it. How dare you come in here and lecture me? How dare you, sir? How dare you come into this office and bark at me like some little junkyard dog? I am the President of the United States. It gives me no pleasure to do it, sir. As acting deputy director of intelligence, it is my duty to report this matter to the Senate Oversight Committee. And at that point, the president threatens him, like really pulls out the big guns and is like, this is how politics works. This is what you're going to do. You're just going to save this for some time. We need to save your ashes like everyone else does. Potomac two-step. 
And Ryan says, I don't dance. I think the president's mistake here was he said that ultimately Greer will take the fall. The rest of the blame oh, will fall yeah. on Greer. And I think Ryan was already not going to put up with it. Oh, but yeah, I think it was the president you. saying, you know, you'll be a scapegoat, but Greer will be the one who but is like the unpatriotic citizen that's to blame. And Ryan is like, fuck that. Yeah, you, He's the real hero here. Sorry, You're not going to posthumously shame my friend and mentor. You will rue the day that that happens. Trebek. You will rue the day, Trebek. And so we end with Jack Ryan sitting in front of the committee, allegedly saying his piece. Telling his story. Cue credits. Zach, what did you think about this movie? I'm trying to figure out how to separate, how to not give too much away now versus my dish. But I, I found myself kind of bored and very confused for most of this movie and a little bit frustrated with the web of characters and connections they build with the lack of plot. It's a plot desert, but character abundance. And... That really kind of soured the first part of the movie on me. The second part of the movie, it turned into like that 90s gem action movie that we're, we're hunting for. But uh-huh. the first part was just all over the place, I thought. But again, Harrison Ford is pretty kick-ass in it. Jack Ryan seems a little unbelievable, but um, what'd you think? I share very similar thoughts to you. I think that there were too many characters too quickly. A large majority of the characters didn't matter. And yeah, there was not enough plot to justify the amount of characters in the movie. I imagine the book was different, but I don't know. It uh, yeah, there, Moira was Moira Moira Moa Moira Rez Moira was basically a throwaway character, but her only purpose was like to be killed. She she was like a sacrificial lamb for. It wasn't even furthering the plot. It was just like she died and I guess furthering Bandersi Jack Ryan's evil narrative. Yeah, I felt like they tried to make the connection to the Ryan family with Moira, but it was so weak. So, so weak. Weak sauce, if you will. Very much so. You could break that connection just by breathing on it. Yeah, Moira connection needs a reduction. To continue the cooking uh, analogy, (laughs) reduce that sauce a bit. Bring some potency to it. Oh, yeah. Stir it a little longer, a little faster. We need to get those peaks a little stiffer. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Moira was lacking stiff peaks in this movie. She sure was. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Her peaks were pretty stiff when uh, Van Darcy Ryan was around. Oh, for sure. And her her peaks were a little bit stiff when she started to get strangled, too. And I was like, oh, wait, this isn't... uh, Oh, this isn't uh, (laughs) uh, autoerotic asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. It's just regular non-erotic asphyxiation. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was pretty clear with our descriptions just now that I didn't really like this movie that much. So, Mitch. Yeah, man. A bit that is quickly becoming one of my favorites. The true hero. Mitch, who is your true hero in this movie? 
So I'm going to actually make a quick petition for revision of the true hero rule. Hmm. And that is that I would like to propose that the true hero could be a hero for either side. It could be a hero on the side of the antagonist or the protagonist. What do you think? Oh, man. We're going to be like very ambiguous with which who the hero could be assigned to, good or evil. Yeah, I am a little biased with this petition because last episode, I'm pretty sure I chose what you could consider an aid to the antagonist as a true hero in The Naked Chick. But I, I feel similarly in this movie because my nomination for the True Hero Award is Mustachioed Motorcycle Man. Ooh. And that is because while he was on the side of the baddies, he was pivotal to the progression of the plot, which is something that not many characters can say in this movie. Uh, he was the one who led the convoy astray when the American suit team got to Bogota. And he was the one who ended up slaying Ron Jeremy with a bat. So because of those two reasons, and he was also kind of just, you know, in the background with Banderas Ryan, like his advisor or his sounding board. He never says a word. Get up. And yet his actions, <laughs> his actions speak volumes. And it's, it's kind of goofy in a way, you know. He comes out on the, on the bike and, and without a silenced pistol, like 50 feet from the convoy, just shoots the other bike cop. And then he busts out of the, he busts out of a door with just guns blazing with his boss in the room. Like it's, it's very out of left field and also just um, reckless. So that'd be mine. I didn't notice he didn't say anything in the movie until you said that. But you're right. He didn't say anything. It's kind of crazy. Get up. I don't. I thought you pointed that out earlier, but yeah, no. He. I don't think uh. he had a single word, or if he did, it was like one line. Get up. And so that is why I nominate Mustachio the Motorcycle Man as my true hero. That's a great true hero. I, I was watching the movie and I saw him pop up twice and thought like, this guy is a badass for a character just like in the background of most of the movie. Right. He's doing. He's way too hard in this movie. Yeah, and I guess there's there's something to be said. Maybe there's some subliminal messaging going on with that mustache, with you and I having just come off of a pretty serious mustache train. So maybe he he kind of you know edged in with that. But I still feel like he was pivotal to the plot and just an all around true hero sort of guy. Well, my true hero is very much mirrored from your choice. Oh yeah. He's on the good side, but instead of being an actual bodyguard warrior, he's a little bit more behind the keyboard. I knew it. It is the CIA analyst who both uncovered the file of Harden and got Jack Ryan into Count Raider's computer. And not only that, he it's almost like he could sense my impatience with the movie and he waited to tell Jack Ryan that Ritter could see he was on his computer until it was too late. And the analyst is kind of like, all right, like we need to get the two, the, the good guy and the bad guy, like button heads. This, this plot has got to go somewhere. Right. Yeah. He, I mean, without him, Jack Ryan wouldn't know anything. He wouldn't know who Harden was. He wouldn't have been able to see the file. You could argue, you could switch out Jack Ryan with another analyst and this goes okay. But without that analyst behind the keyboard, this movie doesn't go off the ground. That's a really good point. Cause from the very, in the first 10 minutes, I think 
he's introduced and he hacks air quotes hacks the hardened floppy disk <laughs> and because of that ryan is able to say oh well look at these financial records this is sketchy and that's where the plot starts to build but progress i guess well i guess the next question that comes with our pod is zach if you had to compare this movie to a food dish of some sort what would it be Boy, I had, I had to think hard about this for a second because, well, I'll just come right out with it. Uh, no anticipation, unlike this movie. Yeah, just yeah. In the plot. Flipping on its head, my dish for this is durian pizza. Durian pizza? Durian pizza. Oh, my God. Durian's that, like, stinky fruit, right? It is. The one that you either love or hate. It is. You might like the flavor, but you hate the smell. I've had pizza i've had durian i've never had durian pizza so you might call me uninformed here but i think i would know how i feel about durian pizza based on my collective experiences with the the parts Uh durian for me and i know this might be a controversial opinion especially if we have viewers that are are from asia of the asian persuasion sure (laughs) (laughs) um i don't like durian very much it's very good at first. It's like, ooh, this is kind of sweet. It tastes great. And then it just turns into feet. It turns into feet in my mouth. <laughs> it's the opposite of clear and present danger for me. Clear and present danger at first is feet. And then it's great. Uh, the movie is, it's just a cluster of all sorts of different mini plots and characters and interactions that take so long to coalesce into something that's actually feels meaningful and that I felt some kind of excitement about that um, the first part for me is just, it's terrible. They tried to do way too much with it. It was just, it was feet. So for that reason, mine is durian pizza. Very nice. I like that. I like that a lot. And I, I agree with you. It, it, in the beginning, you're so confused, kind of the way you're confused about what's going on with durian. Yeah. So, so yeah, foot, not a great taste to have in your mouth. Um, so I am chomping to the bit to hear your dish, Mitch. Oh, man. So I... I was pretty sure I thought about this dish like night of watching the movie and I was sure it was great until we started recording this pod today. And then I was like, shit, maybe it won't work, but I think it still will. So my choice for this movie is a botched beef Wellington. (laughs) So the reason why I initially chose beef Wellington is because beef Wellington, if you know what it is, it's kind of like a showstopper dish, right? It's, a dish to hold a, at, at a high standard. And if you order Beef Wellington somewhere, you're going to pay a lot for it. It should be really freaking good. It has a whole lot of components going on with it. But basically what it is, is a really great cut of beef, like filet mignon or, or something. And then it's coated in pate. And this, I can't, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's like decels or something. It's, it's basically like a mixture of a whole bunch of onions and mushrooms and then it's coated in, in puff pastry, and it's Ooh. baked. And when it's done right, it is an incredible dish. It has a whole bunch of different flavors and things going on, And but the thing is it has to be executed perfectly. If you don't execute it perfectly, it's not that great. And I think that this movie is an example of that because they have so many characters, and the plot feels like it's not progressing super quickly, and it's just kind of all over the place. And 
in the end, like it ends pretty okay. I, I mean, I think we got maybe what, 15, 20 minutes of action at the end of that movie. About, I'd say, yeah. And in the same way that you're still going to stuff yourself with this botched beef Wellington because you paid like $200 for it at whatever five-star steakhouse you went to, by the end of eating that beef Wellington, you're full and you don't even taste it anymore. In the same way that in that that last scene with Banderas Ryan, he just takes a couple to the chest, scene change, like you don't even care anymore that he was the antagonist. The same way you don't even care what this beef Wellington tastes like. You're just going to get your money's worth of calories out of it. Yeah. So Let's just get this movie dish over with. So yeah, I think um, a botched beef Wellington. If they had more elegantly pulled off the different characters, if they all had their place in the movie and they all had their importance in the movie, I think it could have been a true beef Wellington. But they also probably would have had to add in a little bit of extra flavor near the beginning. Based on the information and how well that was delivered, I'm guessing you've had Beef Wellington before. I have had, I actually have had Beef Wellington. Uh, and it's actually really funny you mentioned that because uh, my wife's father, my father in law, is a Republican dad. <laughs> and, um, he he likes to you know flex beef Wellington when going to a steakhouse on occasion. My parents-in-law, they're not super well off, but they're not hurting. And one of the things that they like to do is eat very well on occasion. So on a special occasion like a birthday or an anniversary, they might go out to a steakhouse. And I've had the pleasure of accompanying them once or twice. And I remember when uh, my father-in-law pulled the waiter aside and said, "Can you make beef Wellington?" And it was like, uh, let me ask the chef. And he came back and they were like, yes, we can do it. It'll be 45 minutes or an hour or something like that. You know, a long wait. And yeah, the beef Wellington that I had was very good. But I could also tell that if if it wasn't done right, and of course, my father-in-law painstakingly explained what all goes into it. Um, well, he had to explain to the chef how to cook it. Oh, no, to me. Oh, you know, okay. Like, asking, like, what's sense. the significance of this dish? <laughs> I was trying to imagine, like, yes, we can do it, but tell us how to do it. <laughs> what's that again? <laughs> yeah, so in the same way this is made for, like, the boomer dads, this movie, I think it is, that's the way that Beef Wellington is made for boomer dads, too. I just thought it was a funny correlation because I was thinking about it, and when we were describing the dad who watches this movie, I realized I was, I was pretty much describing my father-in-law, <laughs> who I love. He's a, he's a great guy. Like he's, he's, he's a really awesome person. But, um, yeah, I mean, he is a Republican dad, and I think he probably read Tom Clancy at some point, <laughs> like my dad did. He strikes me as the kind of guy that would. Oh, yeah, you've met Jack. Yeah. Name drop. Dad publican. Yeah. That's a that is a very apt comparison and I have, I think, as we've alluded to before, maybe off pod, some dish envy. You have dish envy again? That is a great dish. Oh, man. Mitch. Thanks. I really thought tonight I was like, I don't know if I can justify it because of all the different shit, but thanks, dude. It's you hit it on the head. They have so many different balls in the air that just don't seem to tie up or seem Use, useless they have no point and it's just distracting but i think we've beaten that horse to death yeah we sure have <laughs> <laughs> so if you've made it this far in the pod we salute you and pat you on the back because you must be a great friend yeah you must be or you might be one of these two people right here in this room <laughs> somehow we've gotten this far just talking about the movie um let alone listening but 
what are we doing next time, Mitch? What's what's in the docket for next time? Oh man. Uh, well, we've got 29 <laughs> movies after re- recording Point Break on our list of 90s movies for the dish. So we've got a random number generator here, or a 29-sided die, if you will. And yeah, do you want to do the honors, Zach? Sure, I'd love to. Let's see here. Um, I'm going to roll this die, and we are going to see what it gets us. You want to you blow my die, Smitch? Yep. We have number nine, which just so happens to be Time Cop. Time Cop. Ooh, that sounds fun. I've never seen Time Cop. I haven't either, but I can't think of a more fitting title for a 90s movie. <laughs> yeah, I know. I wish we could discuss more about what we have in store for us, but I, I, my, I'm excited about what's in store for us. I, don't I know. assume that there is a, a person of the law who travels through time. Boy, that is some extreme guessing work there. How'd you come up on that? I'm just a really intuitive person. Uh, (laughs) Indeed. So on the next episode of The Dish, we will be traveling back in time to bring you some police time-traveling detective work. We've got to go back in time and punish you for your crimes. Boy, if our podcast is as bad as that (laughs) outro, we are are not going to do well. Time cop next time, everyone. And by everyone, I mean you, Zach. <laughs> just, yeah, it's just the two of us, Mitch. Well, thank you, everyone, again for listening. You can find us on no social media platforms as of yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> if this ever sees the light of day, then you can probably find us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter or whatever those places are that people use for being social in the ether. Don't tell your friends. Or... Yeah, actually, no. Just don't. <laughs> I was going to say, no, you could No, no, actually, let's just keep this embarrassment amongst ourselves. Uh, thank you for listening. This has been The Dish with Zach and Mitch. So since we've established that this is Burp Pod, I have an idea. Okay. We should, in our edit, reserve the most heinous burp from every episode and just leave it in. There have been some heinous-ass burps. I know it's asking a lot of our viewers to endure that, but I've asked my wife, (laughs) and she's usually a pretty good judge of these things. And a couple of other people, and they agree the burps aren't overdone, probably because there's so few of them that get left in, but they're funny. <laughs> so I guess if we can... I think it's a great idea because we have a lot of burps that get edited out. Dozens. I am maybe ashamed to say. Uh, so I think leaving one burp nugget in each episode is a fun idea. It's fantastic. A, a burp nugget Easter egg. We don't want to turn this into burp pod. That's a totally different thing. I I think a look we're not going for. Just if we ever have live shows, be prepared.